Before we get to Aspen Ideas to Go, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast from The Atlantic called How to Build a Happy Life. Join happiness correspondent Arthur Brooks as he hosts interviews with experts about living a more joyful, meaningful, and intentional way of life. From the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy to meditation aficionado Dan Harris, the show provides a lens into the many ways you can begin to be just that much happier. Find How to Build a Happy Life at theatlantic.com or on your favorite podcast app. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Kate Bowler studies self-help. She's a professor at Duke, author, and lives with cancer. Her new book is No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. It's about the wisdom and absurdity of today's best life now advice industry that tries to convince us we can out-eat, out-learn, and outperform our humanness. We push for perfect lives, she says, so we can avoid pain or solve it quickly if it shows up. Americans are particularly convinced of a hyper-individualism in a very intense pragmatism and a deep belief that if they have a certain attitude that they can apply a formula to their life. I think the hope there is to solve the problem of, of pain. Today, she talks about letting go of the fantasy that everything's going to work out. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Society of Fellows. Kate Bowler was 35 years old when she learned she had stage 4 colon cancer. As an academic who teaches Christian history, she's not a stranger to the popular notion that good things happen to good people. Unrealistic hope and optimism often drown out real responses to pain and suffering. It's important, she says, to acknowledge reality, which means confronting emotions like outrage and fear. In her book, she talks about her personal experience living with cancer in a culture that says anything is possible turns out, we all need one another if we're going to tell the truth. She speaks with Adele Banks, a national reporter at Religion News Service. Here's Banks. Thank you. It's great to be here and great to be with Kate. Aw, and people. Look at this. Real life humans. It's amazing. That is a wonderful thing. Yes. So first, I think we should start out with the most basic of questions. Sure. How, how are you? Oh, yes. Great. I, uh, I, uh, I, was, I was bitten by a copperhead snake this week, uh, surprisingly, in a suburban setting. And so, um, we, yeah, I have a lot of Sharpie on my leg as they were tracking the venom as it crept up my leg. So I, talk, I like pulled the nurse aside. I was like, I've got a trip to Aspen <laughs> that I'd really like to make. So, um, yeah, they cleared me to come, and I feel really grateful to talk about I don't know anything about Copperhead, so we'll have to talk about other things, but, but just being grateful for life itself. Well, the part of the reason she's written a new book is because she was speaking about her cancer diagnosis and moving on from that. So I have at least one question that's specific to that. Sure. You're both an academician and an author, as well as a woman who has lived the life of a cancer patient. Can you talk a bit about how your professional and personal lives have collided since your diagnosis, especially what it's like to see books in a hospital gift shop that prompt a certain response from you. <laughs> so I, I am normally like a very um, Canadian person, like uh, uh, not prone to using like what my mom calls my healthy outdoor voice. And I, uh, 
I, I just so when I was very suddenly diagnosed uh, with stage four cancer at 35, I had had a really rough go with treatment. Um, I mean, diagnosis. I'd spent about six months begging doctors to take my pain seriously and being sent home from the ER with Pepto-Bismol. So when I was finally diagnosed, I had grabbed the doctor by his lapel right before he pushed me into surgery and said, I had better not die looking into your eyes. And then all the nurses burst out laughing. And I, I really realized that surgery was a really special time for me comedically. So I, uh, at that point, I was like, all right, I'm going to have to live with this new information. And, but the second I uh, woke up from surgery and they cleared me to start uh, pacing the hallways and then um, terrorizing the gift shop downstairs, I realized that they were selling copies of a book that I happen to be an expert in. I am an expert in the, the, the history of the idea that good things happen to good people. So how did we, as in North Americans, somehow begin to believe that when the core, in the, inside the course of all of our lifetime, all things would be made well. How is it that we became not just um, hopeful, but so optimistic that we might, like I did, feel outrage when something tragic happens? And so when I was with my little IV pole, like cleared to walk the hallways, I, it's like a hospital bookshop, and I realized that they were selling copies of Joel Osteen's book, Best Life Now, and that I had spent so long studying, very t tenderly researching, and, but I just was so, like honestly, just kind of offended, so I just gently started Removing the, <laughs> removing the copies until this poor sweet hospital gift shop worker came out and like got the manager who very kindly was like, ma'am. <laughs> and I was like, look, I promise I'm not crazy. I'm a faculty member at this <laughs> university, but you can't sell me this. Like you can't sell me the promise that everything is gonna work out. And she um, very politely just kindly <laughs> was like, would you like to make any suggestions of other books I should purchase? And then I did. But then the next time I walked past, there were new copies of Joel Osteen's new book called something like, You Can, You Will. <laughs> so. The next best thing. <laughs> I still need to like, make the tour back and be like, look, lady. Check their library one more time. <laughs> so in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty, people often go for all kinds of self-help, including that, but not just religious books. Um, yeah. You've mentioned how people go to experts like Marie Kondo on reducing clutter. So what does it say that there seems to be this universal push for perfect lives? Yeah, and formulas. Like, just tell me the rules. Just tell me the rules. Just give me the straight path that at least if I've gone through something that just helps me clear the hurdles of, of the next worst thing happening. And I, I see this happening all the time as someone who studies self-help, which is the, I mean, it's partly the genre itself. There's always like seven chapters intro, conclusion, and five are very helpful steps. Um, and it, and it, works for, it, it works for anything in which you're desperate to find that kind of outside in. So um, if only I just had less stress hormones by not having mess in my sight line, and therefore, if I go to the container store, I will, you know, my teenager won't hate me. Like, you can see how the causality becomes very confusing when we're really desperate for formulas. But it's a very... Um, it's, a, it's an intensely, I mean, frankly, it, it, it comes from these really deep philosophical and religious seedbeds in, in, through American religious history where, um, where Americans are particularly convinced 
um, in a, of a hyper-individualism, in a very intense pragmatism, and a deep belief that if they have a certain attitude, that they can, they can apply a formula to their life. And, and I think the hope there is to solve the problem of, of pain. And of course, like that's that's a tall that's a tall order for any book you buy at the airport, or you know anyone else you see on late night television. In the preface of your forthcoming book, you summed up one of the key challenges of grief, saying, "We lose people before we can learn to live without them." Yeah. Do you see some purpose in grief? Some benefit that we may often not acknowledge. Mm. That's such a hard question, Adele, because I, because uh, I've had, like, I felt, I've seen like all the like the terrible gifts of loss, like you know, like you you know what you love when you're scared of losing them or when they're gone, like that's the. So I have like seen the richness of um, not wanting to live without people not knowing how to move on because you just can't picture a world without them. Um, uh, Frederick Buechner is such a lovely like, theologian and thinker, and he says, um, like, this is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Mm. And like, of course, being afraid, though, is the feeling of seeing the beautiful and the terrible all lumped together. So I, I struggle a lot with it because I... Um, I think one of the most common responses I got after being diagnosed was, um, but aren't I so grateful that comments? Aren't I so, at least you had, at least you have a son, at least you found the love of your life, at least you. And like, I think the, the problem with life, I guess she said grandiosely, um, is that like love itself is the solution and the problem. <laughs> it's like, the more we love, the more painful life is. And the more yeah. painful losses. Yeah, yes. mm -hmm. that's right. Mm -hmm. And then we just look at beautiful things and shrug. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You talked about how people exhibit emotional tourism. <laughs> and I'm wondering about what advice you have for people like us who have friends and loved ones who have cancer or yeah. some other medical diagnoses, and sort of what you were just speaking of, but yeah. who may be inclined to say unhelpful things <laughs> what? when no. they think they're being helpful. Never. <laughs> I don't, that doesn't sound familiar. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I think the emotional tourism kind of landed for me because um, I've noticed that when something really bad happens, I'm just thinking of bad things that have happened to, to me. Um, but I've noticed, I, I have this podcast where we talk, I talk to all kinds of people who've gone through, who have a before and an after in their lives. And I've noticed that one of the most common responses to, to this kind of person is um, wanting to engage without engaging by being curious. Like, uh, and sometimes it's so lovely for someone who's lost someone when they say, even like a very difficult question, like how did he die? Sometimes people are, are really grateful for the opportunity to, to kind of start swimming into the deep end. Um, 
because so often everyone sort of aggressively is swimming in the shallow end. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> how dare you? Don't come over here. Uh, but the the idea that curiosity is kind of poking around the edges. But I tend to find that most of the questions are centered around managing their own response, like trying to figure out why it was me and not them. So I had a you know, and it's different with every illness. But I had uh, colon cancer, which is very uncommon for young people. And so then most of the questions I got was related to, like, I mean, they wouldn't say it directly unless they said it directly, um, <laughs> which is like, and how might I infer that it is your fault? And so, uh, I mean, I've gotten, and it's, it's, it's religious people, it's not religious people, it's, it's aggressively not religious people, it's the whole gamut. The religious people are typically very invested in, like, I've gotten a lot of um, lessons I need to learn, sin in my life, on you know grave spiritual errors I've made, and therefore I am experiencing punishment. Then there's just like the whole Gwyneth Paltrow genre, in which I have yet to save myself with smoothies or a juicing, like a really aggressive juicing regimen. Or that would just solve it right there. I think essential oils <laughs> is probably going to do it for me, though. I think that somebody's cousin is just this this. This short of selling me, um, but you know, and it's it's, and then there's so many kinds of hidden causality. Like with anything to do with the with you know colon means that they go into like an aggressive. Um, maybe I'm I'm too fat. I'm too you know. And uh, and it's it's a it's it's an understandable math that we're all trying to run. That we're all like causality seeking creatures. But part of the privilege, I think, of being a professor who studies people's rationalizations <laughs> is to be able to see how desperately we are to find a, like reasons, reasons. And I mean like just reasons, like <laughs> it's you, not me. Instead of just keeping that open-hearted space that, that still requires that we all be afraid, that we don't get to control what happens in our lives. Yes, yes, yeah. So you have learned some of the harsh truths about people in the clinical trials who have not survived, and yeah. that has to produce a certain grief of its own along with a bunch of other emotions. Yeah. So I wonder if you have found the right words and actions when people you know are grieving, either the state of their health or the loss of a loved one. Do you know, especially after having people say the wrong things to oh. you, what to say to people? Yeah, and I have I've noticed myself being genuinely the worst. I mean, this one poor man I met the other day had a colostomy bag, and it's not, it's not like something you want to talk about, because it's kind of a private thing that your insides are now on your outsides. And, but I thought that I was just so cool and relatable to be like, oh, I almost got one of those. Insert long speech about that loud voice in which I invite other people into this conversation. And this poor guy is like, I just want to be, like, I just want to be my own age. Please stop talking about my colostomy bag. So I do find that one of the grave, the grave errors is in attempting to be relatable. Because, I mean, that's what happened right after I got sick was um, everybody had an aunt who had recently passed from colon cancer and were pretty upset about it. Or or had recently seen a documentary called The Cure for the Truth About Cancer. There's always something like that, and there's a lot of important lessons. Um, But I did sort of start to lovingly lump them into categories, which was... Um, teachers, people who respond and then immediately have a, like a lesson that they'd like to learn. Sometimes those people are unbelievably smart and you do just listen for a bit. Um, but the hope is that they're, I think they're trying to save you from future pain. 
The problem is when you're like, have stage four cancer and someone gives you a copy of Truly Prevention magazine. I remember receiving a copy and being like, it's a bit late for that, sweetie. Like, it's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Teachers are everywhere, and I work, you know, I'm on a faculty, so there's a lot of teaching. There's a lot of teaching that goes on. Um, there's a lot of intense minimizing, a lot of at least. I mean, so not only minorly hilariously, I was, you know, I'm just touching my snake bite here, but I was, <laughs> I was getting about $100,000 worth of anti-venom pumped into my left leg this week. It's a sentence I didn't think I would say. And um, this, this very kind nurse who I really liked said, um, well, at least you're at Duke. She was totally right about that. They did get their own discount on anti-venom because there are so many copperhead bites in the area. And so she was right that at least I had at least. But when we began talking about her loss and my, um, and my cancer diagnosis, she was like, well, at least you're at. And I was like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, this place almost killed me. And that's hard for me to say because I simultaneously want to tell you how grateful I am. But grateful is also a burden that the suffering carry when we're not sure if we're allowed to tell the truth. So minimizing is also like an intense, it's a very natural but very like intense thing to carry when you're the one that's like, at least I had a whatever. <laughs> we want to at least this right now. Just give me a week or two or just let the sharpie rub, rub, rub off. So a lot of them are teachers or minimizers. <laughs> yes. And both of them seem to be more about themselves than about you. I, I, think, I think there's so much love in there. It's just, mm. but I think it's so hard to hear anyone's story without, without it making us afraid or always trying to intuit the implication. But like other people's lives are not usually a lesson. You know, like, like I hear this from like uh, with people who, you know, who get divorced or um, have a child with behavioral issues or like there's so much synthetic thinking that means like, oh, are you getting a divorce? Well, shouldn't have traveled so much. You know, everyone is just so quick with the that they just don't leave enough space for the for life not being nearly as linear as we might hope. They want to just figure it out. Oh, we're so... And figure it out for you, too. It's huh? <laughs> like, and five, four, three, two. Oh, thanks. You solved it. So most of the people who, uh, were, who are in the hospital and get visited, they get visited by friends and loved ones, but you were particularly visited by people who had professional religious duties. Yeah. So I'm wondering about that, visiting, being visited and prayed for yeah. um, by pastors and a bishop. Yeah. Um, were those visits most often a comfort, given what you've been saying? Yeah. Or did they present some challenges yeah. as well? I have the very strange, so I kind of have one of those hybrid jobs where, you, you know this world, where, you know, so I'm in a university setting and everybody has like a lot of very, you know, intense wine and cheese feelings. Um, so there's a lot of sort of uh, university-ness. And then um, simultaneously, I, I work in a, in a professional school that trains nonprofit workers and pastors and, and people who have very meaning-heavy vocations. And what was so hilarious and awkward about my um, life and then diagnosis was, when I was diagnosed, I, um, I just like, I heard the news and then I like walked over to the hospital and then you put on like a really uncomfortably revealing outfit and then um, you check yourself in and then thank you 
all my colleagues are very concerned, so then they walk <laughs> walk over, and I'm like mid something, you know, something's always being changed or whatever, and my faculty friends are just right all up in there. Um, but what was so lovely is uh, I had kind of forgotten because we're all teaching courses and we have this sort of professor hat on that they're also often um, ordained that most of the people that I work with have have married people and they have buried people and they have held hands with people in the most intense and intimate and and terrifying circumstances. And so when they came over and they were willing to be the people who held my hand and you know and like just have someone to put their hand on your head and I had this one colleague, he was like the real talker. I love him so much, and he always has a story for everything. And I had forgotten that he's a bishop, and, as well as a professor, and I had forgotten that he was so good at like, what, like liminality, like so good at standing up close to the abyss with other mm -hmm. people. And he would just find out when my surgeries were, and those things start at horrible times. And I would just look over, and it's 4 a.m., and there he is. He got his clerical collar out of his gym bag, you know, and he's there um, being the calming presence that, 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 you know, my partner and my family needed, but also just waiting till everyone clears out of the room and just, like, gives me a minute to be... Like, he, he did this, like, he, like, put his hand... He just put his hand on my head, and I... Threatened HR. I was just like, if you keep touching me like this, I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but I am, again, post pre surgery is just a really special time for me. And, um, and he was like, and God, please bless this one in particular because her best work is yet to come. And just to have someone pour their hope into me, like that's like, a that's, uh, kind of bravery that I really admire. And that's, a, that's the kind that I happen to like, work with a lot. So I think having people be aggressively hopeful on my behalf helped me extend my horizons beyond, you know, because in cancer world, they just give you, your horizon's only your scan. Like, they just give you these little awful, like, congratulate, you get two, great, thank you so much, you get two more months. And then you just do it again and again and again. And so to have people hope beyond your hope feels just like love. And that hope of his was about you. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the other people you've yeah. spoken about were trying to figure out how they fit into all this and how they could say something. But he was more focused on you and what God could do for you. There's something too, and for people who are religious or not religious, there's something about will being willing to be almost like embarrassed like I notice that when people often they're you know they're not sure for you or they're or, or someone's going through a hard time they might want to like hedge their bets like you want to pull back a little because you don't know how it's going to turn out and but when you were the person suffering you can feel everyone hedging their bets and you just want to say like I don't know what's going to happen either but like I need you to jump with me because I'm I'm going to have to do it regardless and it would be so nice if I didn't have to do it by myself. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was so nice that people, for some reason, especially fancy people who like, kind of didn't have to, were willing to get a little like sloppy. <laughs> I thought that was... Okay. What's sloppy? What do you mean? Kind of like, I don't know, like 
even with my, I'm just thinking, because I can think of like the Christian versions where people were willing to pray for me even though they thought I was for sure going to die that year. But even like for my work, I, I had started the, um, the year that I was diagnosed was the year I was supposed to kind of like lock in my job. With the tenure clock, you have to decide, especially as a woman, you're in this really tight window and you have to do every single thing that's important that can only happen in a time, certain time frame at a certain time. So you've got to, you know, get kids in in your only childbearing years. You've got to write two massive books that establish you as a leader and, um, and so many author profile pictures. And you're, you're like, have to establish yourself as being this, like, monument of a thinker. And, um, and I, my, my, my tenure clock, my clock was up roughly the same time as I was supposed to die. And I thought, um, what a weird, it felt kind of like a reverse lottery question. Like, what would you, <laughs> like, what if you had everything? It was like, what if you didn't have everything? Like, what would you do? And I, so it was people who were willing to hope for me that were willing to say, um, like, what dreams can we have now? And for me, that was, um, I am a writer and I am a researcher. And I'm a really good historian. I'm super nosy. And so, and I can sit for long periods of time in the archives. And so I, uh, so they helped me dream bigger dreams than I would have. I was, I was thinking I should hedge my bets. Mm -hmm. And they were like, write this, write this stupid book. I mean, and that was a book that genuinely 500 people they was not going to sell out the library copies for my book on the history of ordination in women and blah, 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 blah. Available to you now from Princeton <laughs> University Press. <laughs> but I, uh, it seems to me like an act of bravery to try to hope for so much without, without requiring certainty in advance. Can you talk about how your religious leanings or affiliation have fit into what you went through in your cancer journey. Oh, well, I'm part of a religious tradition popular in the prairies of um, cheese-eating Mennonites. We are a humble, a humble people. Cheese-eating uh, Mennonites. <laughs> there's a lot of cheese, a lot of corn and apple festivals, a lot of furniture making, a lot of weather commentary. I did hear a lot of weather commentary outside, and I was like, a lot of you would be great Mennonites. A lot of just wind gauging and talking about the, the elevation. I was like, oh, you guys would be super good where I'm from. Um, but wonderfully low expectations. <laughs> you know, like it was, depending on what religious tradition you're from, and this is just kind of a fun um, side, religious side note that I'm sure you and I would both really care about, is based on how your religious expectations, you might have certain assumptions for what your, you know, how fancy your church is, how what um, even, I mean, you can, you can divide up people's um, lifetime earnings by denomination even. Presbyterians, getting it done. Um, but uh, I grew up in a tradition that is quite lower middle class and, uh, and um, agricultural. And what was so nice about being in that group with and having cancer is the hysterical practicality of just trying to learn how to live. They're like, I... I heard you have stage four cancer. We're really gonna need to look at that fence. <laughs> it's just a lot of tinkering, a lot of beautiful practicality, a lot of like, we don't need to do this aloneness that I, that I needed 
Because whenever someone's suffering and then someone else says, what, how, how can I help? What can I do for you? It just, it just feels like sludge. I mean, especially if you're, other than like, if someone aggressively gives you presents, which I highly recommend, someone just sends you unbidden things to your home, which is honestly the greatest idea ever, you really just don't know how to be helped. So someone that's like the bubble, like bubble wrap traditions are, are such a gift. So it's better to not ask, how can I help, but just do it. Be helpful. Just be helpful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if they don't know, then ask their friend, or their friend, or their friend. And if not, just send gift cards. Yeah. Have you learned something from people who have no faith, or who are the quote-unquote nuns, N-O-N-E-S? Yeah. N-O-N-E-S, yes. Yeah. Uh, about how they find meaning when there's illness or other disruption that happens in their life, and, or how they grieve. I think there's an assumption yeah. that you have to be a person of faith to know how to handle these things, but I imagine you may have run across some yeah. who are not. Well, I think, the, I, mean, I think the question at the heart of all of this, and it's, it's bigger than the word grief, it's just finitude, right? Is that we all this last year, and me with cancer and other people with every other world-ending moment, is that is that we, we, we run squarely into our own limitations, and then we have to ask, but what now? But what now, now that I might not necessarily have enough? Because even people who have everything have numbered days. Nobody gets everything. And so I think the, like one of the great, I'm hoping, feelings of coming to the end of this pandemic is one, like a radical interdependence in which people in experiencing public health, like just how much we're all like an invisible spider web connected to each other, that we really do belong to each other in ways that are shocking and usually inconvenient, but always necessary. I, th- I think what we all need, regardless of religious uh, belief or uh, at all, is just like it's it's courage. Mm. It's courage to see to see the world as it is. Uh, is to not turn away just because it um, because it's hard to look at. Like the like it grief is hard to look at. Pain is hard to look at. Inequity is hard to look at. Like it's it's not. It's just it's painful. It's hard work. No matter what your faith or no faith is. Yeah. Next year, the Aspen Ideas Festival is returning to in-person programming on our campus in Aspen, Colorado. Mark your calendars. The festival will be held June 22nd through July 1st with Aspen Ideas Health kicking things off. Passes go on sale January 12th on aspenideas.org. Ideas Conversations will focus on the themes of heat, power, human connection, trust, money, and beauty. Don't miss the opportunity to reconvene in the mountains to discuss the most important issues of our time. Passes go on sale January 12th on aspenideas.org. Sign up for our newsletter for updates. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Adele Banks. Back in 2017, you and I were together at the Faith Angle Forum, which is a small gathering of scholars and journalists. And um, you were asked about um, how some people of faith had approached your cancer diagnosis. And you said, one of the hardest things about being sick is that everyone wants to explain my suffering, and I wish they would just learn to be present. So you've spoken already a bit about the the explanations everyone wants to have. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the presence, because I've spoken to... Uh, chaplains in the past and yeah. about 
just needing to be there rather than figuring out what to say. So I'm wondering what right. presence has looked like right. for your journey, presence that you think could be the right way of helping someone grieve. Yeah, and we all know people like that, right? People who have presence. And there are people who have charisma but not presence because they're just off in the corner being charismatic. Uh, I found too that consultants, you know, are people who like come into organizations, what they do is they're just like, hello. And they just like make a big bubble. You're like, oh, I am very invested in this bubble. I, I do think there is an incredible ability to, to, I mean, we talk about like holding space or creating space, but part of that is just, I think of that as just kind of hospitality. Like it's just generosity where you decide that your, like, your story is going to, whether you like it or not, need to be shared with other people at that moment. And for me, it's been the cure to loneliness. Because I, I think that people in pain, and I include myself, become often accidentally narcissistic, really. Because it, you know, it's happening to you. No one else can be in your body, in your experience. Like, and you want so much to share it, but it's just you. And then it can be very easy to go from that feeling, it's only me, this is my stupid life, too, and therefore I am alone. And, and that's because it, does, it feels absurdly lonely at times. But knowing how, um, but man, knowing how to share space, it seems like that's part of the solution. I know that's been the thing that we're so hungry for after this year, is just to know how to to have now, to like, I bet we remember already what it feels like to be in each other's presence, but we just ached for it this last year. Like, what a reminder of how absurdly interdependent we are. But it does mean that, like, now that we're together, then we have to then extend our bubble beyond our own pain and grief and fear. And, and that seems like a big, a big act. Indeed, it is a big one. Um, I have to ask you about bucket lists. Oh, yeah. You, uh, it's another mixture of personal and professional that you delved into the history of bucket lists, even as you considered your own. And it does seem that people are like, okay, I'm dealing with this crisis now, as you were. Yeah. And okay, so what on my bucket list can I get done? So is there something that you can share about this notion of bucket lists and how it developed and what it says about us humans? <laughs> sure. I... Um... As part of the self-help genre, I had studied all kinds of solutions to how people try to, to like fix the problem of their lives. And that one of them is very, very common is the bucket list industry. It is, um, there's just thousands of bucket list books, enough to keep people industriously morbid for a very long time. And, uh, and so often it comes out of a couple competing, a couple sort of parallel ideas. I mean, the history of bucket list is, you know, as old as, um, as old as um, relic quests and early, the earliest tourism. I mean, the second that there were Roman roads, there were basically early bucket listers, in which they're like, "I'm really going to need to see the, I'm really going to need to see the Colossus. I'm really going to need to get over there." And and then eventually that coalesced into the uh, into the medieval relic trade, in which they're like, "I think that there's a few bones of Saint Thomas that are yet." yet to be seen by my eyes. Um, and the, but it, the desire is a kind of hero's journey feeling that I think we all have, which is how do, we, how do we face our lives in a way that increasingly enlarges it? How do we live bigger and more bravely than we might have before? 
Unfortunately, though, the I mean, and the history of the term bucket list is, of course, um, related to the idea that you, uh, it's very morbid that you either, it's homicide or suicide really is the phrase. But I was very disappointed to learn it didn't enter cult cultural parlance until the Morgan Freeman movie, which I was Googling when I was asked by the, uh, <laughs> by the cancer care nurse to like, wouldn't I be interested in a bucket list? And it was like, Google, 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 <laughs> Morgan Freeman. Uh, I guess people didn't start openly um, openly imagining their bucket list life. The problem with a bucket list um, framework, if we take it to its extreme, is that we imagine that our lives are things that can be checklisted. We start to picture um, not moments, which this, and I'm grateful that this is one for me, that we don't just experience moments, but we experience items as if we can begin to add up the math of our life in a very specific way. In a, in a gross way, it becomes experiential neoliberalism in which you can buy your way and purchase your way into a feeling of accomplishment and therefore superiority. I think taken beautifully though, you can have the chance to say, go whitewater rafting with your friend this morning possibly die tomorrow paragliding, which I did think was very fun and have signed up for. Um, but it's because I'm terrified of heights. And I would like to learn to live into the things that I cannot control. And so I think that there's like a wisdom to it. And there's also, there, but there's the, the Instagram version of it that we all need to just run screaming from. So we should have meaningful bucket lists. <laughs> yeah, or, or just to know that the things that are on your list that really matter, like being able to hold your mom's hand as she passes, the counting your kids' eyelashes, the, the weird calm of, of feeling strangely and shockingly loved. Like you're never gonna think of that in advance and, and write it down and then and then post it. It would be unlikely, to, and if you do, I would very much like to follow that account. Well, given your humor, I have to ask <laughs> you about that. So I found myself laughing as I read your book, which I didn't expect I would be, <laughs> no, be doing that. <laughs> and I just wonder how yeah. you kept or found your sense of humor in the hospital visits, yeah. in the doctor's visits, um, dealing with something so difficult yeah. and really so Thanks. sad. Well, I, I, I think, um, also, I, like, I interview a lot of comedians on the podcast because I'm so interested in this question, is uh, how does certain people, help, like, how do we learn to tell the truth? And humor, to me, is one way that I, I learned to tell the truth. Because if it was just me by myself, I would lie to you. Absolutely, I would lie to you. I, if you offered me water and I was thirsty, I would tell you it's fine and I don't need it. I would um, assume that I'd done something wrong when I wasn't diagnosed correctly. It's, I just think it's, it's hard for all people to live the truth of their lives. I just think it is. And so, I, and I think social conventions, and I think especially for women, are scripted into in a very intense cheerfulness and placation. And it is difficult it's difficult to be in pain. And so I, I found that it was, um, I did a lot of truth telling. Um, like I wrote my horrible, wonderful books, you know, where I was like, and you wouldn't, but that, the stuff I wrote in my books is the things that, if, I mean, close friends 
who were there would say, you know, I had no idea that. Because it just, it is hard to turn yourself inside out and to live as someone, you know, forever just dealing with incurable cancer. It felt, it felt impossible to live in the everyday world of like small talk and, and then simultaneously have this deep question, you know, of like, will this all add up? Will there be enough? Will this be okay? That kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I found that um, the, the humor helped me live in the surrealness of it, you know, where things are so, do you have those moments where you're like, it's so insane that it's funny again? And then it's back to sad, but then it's, but then it's back to copperhead snake bite. And I laughed through most of the infusion because I was like, really? Really me? Have you seen my chart? <laughs> so, it does help me get back in the deep end, I think, I hope. Thank you. Well, we kind of come full circle, and now it's your turn. Oh, my gosh. Hey, thanks. Ask questions. Adele, you did such a lovely job. Thank you for that. <laughs> Please wait for someone to come to you with a microphone, but please go right ahead. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I was just thinking about kind of the process of what you were saying about loss and grief and um, going through something where you are deeply affected. Um, but it, it seems that we do have this expectation that we're going to have things for a long period of time, and then when they're gone, it's just kind of shocking or unfortunate but really we do kind of lose it all, all of our friends or our own lives, or you know, we go through these grieving moments. Yeah. But I feel like there's such a lack of, um, I don't know if like how to do that or, or yeah. how to celebrate what we have while we have it mm -hmm. um, with the expectation of loss. Like you have an obituary or you have um, you know, physical therapy or, or going through treatment and those types of things, but there isn't a lot of things in our culture or in society or maybe any that really talk about how to be more um, present with what we have, like when you were recovering. Um, just wondering if you have any ideas about how to be yeah. more, more uh, anything that could, could go into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, I guess I, started, I, I sort of think of the way we imagine all this as a bit of a seesaw. Like if we imagine the fulcrum just of a seesaw as the present, right? And then there's the past, which is for some people the thing that they're, grieving or, you know, like I meet survivors of kind of all the time and, and they're trying to manage the weight of the past. And then for a lot of people, the, the grief is the fear of the future. It's living without people. It's, it's a diagnosis. It's not going to be solved. It's a relationship that broke and it's not coming back. And, and for all these things, one of the most popular, I'm going to say solutions because you can already tell them how much I hate it, is like a very aggressive, and I love the mindfulness people, I love them, I'm just putting that as my asterisk, but the, one of the implications is that the solution is, is aggressive mindfulness, that if only you controlled your mindset, were careful about your words, I wrote a whole history of the, of, the, of the history of positive thinking. And one of the assumptions then is for those people, the solution to the problem of either past pain or future pain is, is mindset. And so you're going to get a zillion apps and very beautifully braided caftan wearing Instagram helpers who are going to tell you that that is going to fix all your problems. I'm not saying you, but I really like where we're going with this. And um, I think, to me, one of the great gifts of um, learning to be more present, meaning to celebrate, to enjoy, like, 
like, holy crap, this, <laughs> this place. <laughs> like, just soaking it in and then, and then celebrating and feeling like for that second that everything is enough, that feeling. That, to me, seems like, like trying to find that balance between the past and the, and the future and allowing yourself to just open up the aperture of that. I think, however, our culture has mistaken that with trying to reassert certainty and control. So they'll teach you that as like, I will teach you the seven steps to like lock this in. And I think that is deeply pernicious because we need the past and we need the future. We're just trying to balance like how to do exactly what you're describing. Other questions? Thank you for that. Just as a follow-up to what you just said, can you maybe describe in your research and um, in your body of work how uh, just inexactness and imperfection and not knowing the future is healthy and mm -hmm. how, do, how do people reset their minds to say you can't yeah. program at all when yeah. that's what the goal really is. Yeah. So thank you. Well, because it got confusing for all of us and it got confusing, I'm sorry for the historian thing where I'm like, it was the late 19th century, but it was the late 19th century where in parts because of the, I mean, with the specter of, of inequality, the Gilded Age, et cetera, I mean, I think that um, one of the great American contributions to philosophy was a deep pragmatism and then an obsession with the power of the mind. And what that became was, of course, the incredible nascent discipline of psychology and the ability for us to think about the conscious and unconscious worlds that, that we get to swim around in. The problem is, is that in its popular forms, it got repackaged as, as the ability to bulldoze your way through every obstacle. And that, especially for people who are suffering, it really screws with us because it promises a solution to everything. And like there, <laughs> there is no solution for, uh, for fear and pain and uncertainty and not knowing the way forward. There is, of course, love and beauty and meaning and truth and people who change us and natural revelation. I'm just going to gesture at Aspen all the time for natural revelation. But I, I do think that the, this very intense history of hyper-pragmatism and coalescing with positive thinking, it, it did make us double down on a kind of certainty that I don't think any of us are promised. Kate Bowler is Associate Professor of the History of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. Her latest book is No Cure for Being Human. She's also the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. Adele Banks is a production editor and national reporter for Religious News Service, an independent news nonprofit that covers religion, culture, and ethics. Their conversation was held in July by the Society of Fellows, which is a national community of leaders who sustain and support the Aspen Institute. To view a video of the conversation, hear more like it, and learn about SOF, go to aspeninstitute.org forward slash SOF. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.